0: Hello and welcome to Page Parlay. This is the show where we speak to authors or experts on the work we read in scintillating stories. My name is Virginia Betts and I'm a writer and a poet and I'm also a tutor of English. You write various different mediums, as you said, so do you approach writing prose and poetry differently? It's a very different process for me. I don't know if other people approach it in a different way, but I do it quite differently. So poems, I tend to write all in one. I will be on a walk or I might be swimming or something like that. And if I'm inspired, a poem will come to me and I have to rush out of the swimming pool or I'll have to get home <laughs> chanting it over and over and write it down. Or I might be sitting in my garden, I'll get inspired. Um, once i got inspired by the sound of a little drip in um, my water bottle and it inspired a whole poem. I sort of imagined going inside the barrel and hearing the sound of this dripping water and then the, looked at the spray, the sprinkler, saw a little spider web, and it was all the details that I noticed. So uh, poetry is something I rarely edit very much as well. I've always been a writer of, of poetry and stories ever since I was really small, actually. So when I was about three years old. It was when I wrote my first book. It was a, a couple of bits of paper that I'd tape together. I was only about three or four years old. It was about a, a horse. I think I called it the Sand Horse. It was about a little horse that jumped off the fairground, galloped across the sand, came to life and, and had adventures. And It was only a few pages, obviously, very messy, but I wish I still had it. I don't know what happened to it. I usually keep everything, but it's probably in a box in my mum's loft. That was my first kind of outing when I was at school. I wrote one called the bog man about the Tollins man who was came to life. Um, it was a bit gruesome because I've always liked a bit of horror. I'll explain more about that later and why I like that. But, but that actually became a story in one of my books, which I adapted into a much more grown up version. And it was less horrific and it was a bit more of a romance really in a way at the end anyway. It had some horrific bits in, but. It became quite a nice ending. It developed into something a bit more grown up. I think with stories, I edit a lot more. I tend to go back and back, edit and re-edit, and sometimes it evolves into something quite different to the original idea. But I will run with it. I am writing slow, very slowly, writing a a novel, and that is a very long process. That's very disciplined and a great deal of editing. I like the short story genre. I like reading it um, because you write it. It's a complete version, a complete item that you can read and enjoy, and then you move on to the next one. So I quite like writing those. It's it's a very different process. I, I t- As I say, I tend to edit a lot more with stories. Poetry, just a quick once-over, one or two words I might change, but nothing much. It tends to come out all in one go. People say, oh, don't wait for muse, you have to be really disciplined. But with poetry, I've definitely got a muse that will just say, there's a poem in your head and it's going to come, that's it. When you are sitting down to write, what does your personal writing process look like? (laughs) I dare to to say, it's really, really messy. It's usually a book. I have notebooks galore everywhere. I'm a bit addicted to pretty notebooks. glittery ones or furry notebooks I got a Beatles notebook recently from Liverpool and (laughs) things like that so I'll fill up different notebooks for different stories or different poems but usually it's just lots of scribbling with a a pen a fountain pen usually love to write with old-fashioned equipment there's a beautiful old-fashioned Victorian fountain pen and I have ink. And if I could write with a quill, I would. And I, I tend to sort of scribble lots and lots of notes, make a lot of mess, have it on one page, and then in 10 pages later, I'll carry it on because I've put something else in the middle. So that's how I start something. I wrote one story, the first story in my book, The Camera Obscure. I, I wrote the first story on a train, going up, and then the second half coming back and it was all scribbled and scrawled everywhere and then i will type it up and that it's then that i will start to edit it and maybe change things but they always start in handwriting and then they continue on the computer i have my little laptop and if i'm writing stories i have to move around i have to sit on the bed or on the sofa or on the train as i said <laughs> it's really interesting all the different ways that people write and and go about creating it's so Lovely to get that insight because nobody creates in exactly the same way. It's an artistic process, so it's very personal. I mean, I expect some uh, people who paint pictures are the same. They they might start with a scribble in a notebook, or they'll be on the beach and get inspired. I've even written poems that have started to come into my head. I, I like going to karaoke, so I might be sitting in <laughs> and, <doing laughs> and, a, <laughs> and singing a song, and I'll think, Oh no, oh no, I've got this like lyric that keeps playing around in my head, and it's obviously going to come. Into a poem. So I'll use a beer mat or something. And I know that sounds really cliched and the sort of story that people make up, but it's quite true. <laughs> so yes, I have got beer mats with poetry on. And I've kept them. I keep them because I think, well, if I ever get really famous, the museum will want them. <laughs> ah, yes, yes. in my, my special wing just for me and my create. Yeah. The story was first created on a beer mat. <laughs> oh, you speak. Quite openly in your piece about neurodiversity and the role that's played in your life. So do you feel that neurodiversity plays a role in your creativity? Definitely. I think that my interest in words and the way I am so visual is part of my neurodivergence. I was diagnosed with autism when I was mid to late forties and it wasn't really a surprise once I knew about that particular condition and the way that women are diagnosed or misdiagnosed. When I left teaching to start my own tuition business in 2013, I had many, many students who were on the spectrum or maybe dyslexic, had different sort of neurodivergence. I started to feel quite a kinship with them. I don't know if they were drawn to me or they got really well with me because I was probably the same in many ways. Eventually that led me to get diagnosed with Erlins, which is like a visual processing difference. I could see words and it's literally like they float about on a screen. And sometimes I can have the whole text, like when someone's speaking, but like an auto cue, it will roll and I can sort of see them. I know people talk about synesthesia and they see musicians sometimes say that oh, I can see the music notes kind of in front of my face. And it's a bit like that where your senses are kind of mixed and you I can see the words. I walk myself through my stories. So if it's about someone walking out of the street or on a journey somewhere, I'm in that story and I try to see every detail of it and travel with them. And that's why I have so many different characters with so many different things going on. Because I feel like be that character and then I can be another character, which I think must aid my performing, my acting as well. I just can turn into a character. In fact, I think with autism, you tend to play characters and roles anyway. So every day you might be slightly different because you're so used to acting in a neurotypical way to get through the world. I hate to say disorder. It's a difference. People always say disorder. It's not a disorder because I find all of these things which are disabilities that can be abilities in the right circumstances. So I really do champion it. I really am an advocate for neurodiversity. I hope I give my students confidence to be different or to approach things in a different way as well and to really accept their differences and that you can do anything, certainly in the right circumstances with the right support. I think that a lot of the time neurodivergency is over pathologized I believe is the right word, where all of the Difficulties are highlighted. A diagnosis depends on things that you're struggling with, as opposed to some of the wonderful things that come with neurodivergency and creative expression. I I believe is a key part of that. Neurodivergency, I think, can be a very positive thing, as opposed to focusing on all the negatives. And it's very evident in the creative work you produce that it really does fuel your expression. I love the Victorian Gothic, and that is definitely influenced, perhaps, in some of my poems and some of my stories. I write ghost stories. I write sometimes quite gritty noir stories, which are quite modern. But all of them have the thing in common, which is beautiful language. I like beautiful expression, beautiful language. And I like a lot of detail. Some people like a page turn-up. I don't really like reading something that's too fast. I like the build-up and the detail. So even my modern stories will kind of allude to that. And I particularly like the idea of the serial novels that used to be written by Dickens as an example. So they'd be in the Strand magazine and you'd have to wait for the next one. And I've loved the Sherlock Holmes stories. So, and I love that sort of serialisation, you have to wait. And I've done that in my book, so though, though most of the stories do finish. About three of them have got sequels. And the last story in the book, the longest one, is going to be a running kind of sequel, <laughs> serialisation <laughs> of a few stories. I like that idea that you have to wait for another story with the same character. And actually, I've got two stories in the same book where characters have kind of wandered into the other story. They're, they're, kind, they're mentioned and there's a connection between two totally different stories, but a character from one story has just sort of wandered into another story and then wandered out again. Do you have any advice for people beginning their publishing journey? You... You need to decide whether you're going to go for traditional publishing, which is where you submit your manuscript or whatever you've written to the big publishing houses, and they will then give you an advance to write your book and other books and help you publicize it. So that can take some time. I was way too impatient because I wrote my books over the lockdown and I was already 50. So I didn't want to hang around for my novel. I will try that traditional publishing route to get an agent and all that sort of thing. But I joined the Suffolk Writers Group and I've got lots of advice. They're brilliant, actually. We've got a huge writer's network in Suffolk. Loads of places where you can perform your poetry and your stories. There's also hybrid publishing, but you have to be very careful. They sort of help you. They format it. They do all the hard bits that I would found hard at the time. They have an editor, although I'm a perfectionist. So of course I edited and edited and edited myself and they have covered designs, which I chose. You have a lot of control. You do have to pay them to get those things in place. So you must be careful that you can afford what you pay and check very carefully what your package will include and that they're reputable and not there just to take your money and do nothing. That's what I think you need to look very carefully, that your product is going to be good and check other the things that come out of that publishing house and negotiate the price you pay so that you're happy with it. Or you can self-publish. Ingram Sparks are good as well because the bookshops are more keen to accept your book in the shops. If you go with Ingram Sparks than KDP, although I've got my books on Amazon as well, and they have got into local bookshops and water So gradually that they are accepting it. So even my poet, I had some help at Tim Saunders publishing to get it formatted. It's on Amazon, but it's also in shops that are local shops anyway. So you just have to make the choice that's right for you. If you want to do all that formatting and you know how to do it and follow it step by step, you can happily self-publish. And a lot of people will tell you that self-publishing is taken very seriously. It sells quite well, but you have to do a lot of legwork. So you have to promote it actively. But even with traditional publishing, you get pennies as royalties. So unless you make it really big, you're not going to make lots and lots of money out of your book. You might have someone um, who takes it up and and really, really promotes it, but you still have to do a lot of promotion yourself, even with a traditional publisher. So be prepared to do book talks get out there have social media on every single site and try to do it regularly what do you think are some of the ingredients to a good story oh it's different for everyone but one thing is the characters i've got to buy into the characters or like them in some way so even if they're really a villainous character i think i'd like them to have some traits i can relate to or like about, I've written one about a complete murdering psychopath who you can't really like them at all. Uh, <laughs> and it was really interesting to give person voice, actually. However, I think you can see where their flaws, what should I say, evil, if there is such thing came from. So I think understanding being maybe the devil's advocate for even bad characters, it's not something about them that you can think, oh, there's a depth to that character is what I find interesting. I actually was listening to an author talk the other day and he was saying that he started off his kind of reading journey when he was very young, reading the Sherlock Holmes stories. And that's the perfect example of a heroic character with flaws. So I think that's, that is interesting. Nobody's perfect. So I really enjoy that. A structure that's sort of a slow burner for me. something that has as I said, beautiful language and a structure that slowly reveals with a lot of tension and something that keeps me intrigued, for me, makes a good story. But I like to feel that I could be in story myself in some way. When I'm tutoring, actually, I, I tend to teach the children to look at all sides of a character. So they might be doing their best for GCSE. And the standard thing for Beth, or I should say the Scottish play playbook, you know, yeah, <laughs> is that everyone tends to blame <laughs> Beth and say, oh, she's so evil, she's so terrible, she persuaded Macbeth to do the murder, and he didn't really want to, it's all it's her fault. And, and that's, for me, it's too straightforward. So I always look at the line where Shakespeare plants the idea that she's had a child, the child's not in the play. Where is that child? Did the child die? Is that why she is unbalanced? Does that give her a motivation for being quite unhinged and behaving that way? As a woman, she was quite powerless at the time. All her power and position would have come through her husband. Maybe that explains her desperation for power. So I say, look, she's not a good character. You can't agree with her or like her, but you can kind of understand why characters might behave in a certain way. And that's what will get you the grade nine. But it's also more interesting to explore it in that way. Yeah. Look at Macbeth and think about his motivation. He begins immediately considering the murder. He's very enthusiastic about it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as, as soon as the witches say you're going to be king, he doesn't kind of say, Oh, you're talking rubbish. How am I going to be king? Or, "Oh, that would be nice. I might inherit the title because I'm somewhere along the line, you know, but no, he just starts considering the horrid image. So before Lady Macbeth even gets to him, he thinks about murdering the king. So, you know, he's not all good and he has no conscience. Even at the end, he's pretty much more worried about being caught. So his flaw is really about not being a proper man and he, he getting undermined as, as a male character and masculinity. And she actually has a conscience and feels remorse later on. So it's very interesting to not look at it in the standard way. And that's the same way I like to read stories as well as write them and make a character with a flaw or a bit more intriguing um, and it gradually gets revealed this might have happened to them or that might have happened to them. Not saying I agree with like a psychopathic. But <laughs> <laughs> You'd be surprised to how many authors I've met who, uh, when you ask what are they working on. It's like, oh yes, a terrible murder story. <laughs> and they're, they're the loveliest people. What's in your imagination is much worse than what you see in front of you. So gore and things that don't really interest me, blood and gore and things. But the, the psychological tension and horror, that's what interests me. My story, as I said, The Bogman, that I wrote. It it's kind of set in the thirties. Um and uh they are on a trip taking this specimen to a museum. But the woman on the journey is quite unhappily married. She's just newly married and she's not very happy. And she feels they perhaps shouldn't have resurrected this this so called specimen she sees him more as more of a human. And then something happens and he sort of comes to life. <laughs> so, you won't give away know. the rest in case you wonder. But it became quite sad. Yeah. But there is a sequel, and I've written the sequel from her husband's point of view. I like to see every point of view in a situation. Imagine myself in their shoes and why people do what they do. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, th- thank you. And actually, that leads really neatly into the next question of. Do you have any tips for aspiring writers? I wouldn't try to force your stories or your your writing or your poetry, whatever you're writing, particularly a novel. If you sit down in front of a blank screen, it's terrifying. You think, Oh no, I can't. I've got no inspiration. I'm blank. Everyone gets so called writer's block. So if you can't write one day, don't worry about it. You've got all the time in the world. Take a <laughs> I know, That kind of contradicts the way that I was saying I was impatient to get the book out there, but I try not to worry myself about it. I take a walk, take a breather. Don't think that the muse is going to be something you have to wait for. Write anything. Write if it if it's like a couple of sentences or an idea. Scribble it down, and then you've done something. Don't just sort of sit in front of a screen and panic and try to force words out because you won't probably like it when you read it back. So. So write something down in note form, but don't feel obliged to write a whole chapter. Other people would say, be very disciplined and make sure you write a thousand words a day. But I can't, I personally can't work like that. I think if I get even a a few scribbles down and an idea down, then I feel that I've done something useful and I've been productive. And then the next day I might write 3000 words or a whole story in one sitting, go back and edit it. So it's really what's comfortable for you to panic yourself and think I have to do this every single day. I I must do this. You will meet deadlines, but you can I go about it in a very sort of circular way, and I don't think I've got to write a certain amount of words every day. Write what you enjoy reading, um, what you enjoy writing and creating. I don't really know where my ideas come from. I know I think they are inspired by and, and some of them very deliberately allude to. Victorian ghost stories or gothic stories. Some of them come from real life, but they've been heavily adapted and fictionalised. So none of them are really based on real people, but real people might influence them a little bit. I'm in all of my stories in various guises and forms, but I'm also none of those characters. They're all bits of my personality, but of course, none of them are completely me, Keep writing, just do it. Even if you think it's a bit rubbish, hold on to it and look at it again later. And you might be surprised you can use the material in some way. And they say the Bogman story was one that I wrote when I was 11, but I actually totally adapted it and changed it. And I think sometimes I'll start stories years ago, scribble them in a notebook and pick it up. And I think, oh, that's, that's not bad. That might fly. So. You come back to things. I think just write and get out there and perform your work. Somewhere there'll be a place where you can go to a writer's workshop or a cafe or get used to reading your work or get other people to read it for you and see how an audience maybe reacts to it. If you're shy, I like performing. I'm quite a shy person in real life, but I like performing. So I'll go to these writer's cafes that they have in Stafford where I live And and I really enjoyed performing my own stories and poetry. And I like hearing other people perform. have this thing called Get On Your Soapbox so you can read your work or perform your work. You can actually see people's reactions to the work. People are really supportive. Join writers groups is a really good tip. So the Suffolk Writers Group, I joined that. I've got loads of tips about publishing. I've met tons of people. It led to returning to... A bit of an acting career in professional acting. I performed for the Suffolk Poetry Society a play and played verse. And then I joined Black and White Productions and I've done a couple of historical plays and one coming up next week. So join groups and get support, get mentors, get people to help you. That's that's important. Bounce your ideas off other people. I'm also in the Woolsey Writers, which is our our local theatre, and and that's a great group meeting as well where you can. You can bounce your ideas off people and they can read chapters if you want them to do that and react to them, which is just really helpful. You don't have to listen to anyone's advice, but it's nice to have people chip <laughs> in. You can take as much as you want on board, but it's just nice to have other people in the same situation who are shy about their work, and feeling that, oh, is this good? Is this okay? Would you like to listen to this? And and it's usually very good. So that's, that's great. It gives you confidence. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for coming to speak to us today. If people would like to hear more from you in the future, where can they go? I've got a website. Um, it's called virginiabets.com and there's a lot about my tutoring on there. There's a blog, which I'll be probably adding to today or tomorrow and there, it's my performances and and links to my books as well but my books are on Amazon that's probably the easiest way to get hold of them one's called For to the Sun it's a collection of poetry and the other one's called The Camera Obscure so yes virginiabets.com or Amazon for my books and um, feel free to message me through Facebook I'm on everything I'm on TikTok Facebook Twitter oh wonderful well thank you very much it's been a pleasure to speak to you today thank you it's been brilliant to talk to you thank you so much for liking my work as well thank you so much for listening. If you want to stay up to date with the goings-on here at Yorick Radio, then you can follow us on social media, check out our website, sign up for our newsletter, and subscribe if you would like to hear more. This has been a Yorick Radio production.